Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We come to the end of our study of this amazing parable. We began three weeks ago looking at Luke chapter 15 verses 1 through 3 and seeing the motivation for why Jesus is even saying the things that he is saying. We looked at the first two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And then we started diving into the parable of the lost son. The first week when we looked at the parable of this prodigal, we saw his shameful request. Dad, I wish you were dead. You're no good to me other than what you can offer to me. And I don't like you. I like your stuff. So, Dad, get out of the way. We saw the father's surprising response by saying yes. And then we saw the younger brother's sinful ruin by running into the far country, by hiring himself out to a citizen, chaining himself to that citizen and feeding the pigs. And in his destitution, in his depravity, he is hopeless. And last week we saw his genuine repentance, what it takes to truly repent, a change in your thinking, a change in your affections, and a change in your living. We saw that clearly as he thinks differently. He comes to his senses. He has affections for his father again, and he turns and he goes. But we saw more than that. We saw clearly the amazing grace of the Father on display. Remember that the younger brother says three things. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called one of your sons. Make me as one of your hired servants. Uh, The first two are totally right. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. The second, make me as one of your... uh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I can't do anything now. I've lost that sonship. So the way I'm going to earn it back is his third point. I'm going to work. Let me be one of your servants. Let me work to gain back the access that I had to your family. And you remember he's rehearsing that, those three points, all the way that he's going home. And when he gets home, he says the first two and his father cuts him off before he can ever say, make me as one of your hired servants. We need to know that because that's what the Pharisees are going to get mad at. That's what the younger brother is going to be looked down upon by the older brother. The older brother is going to see that free grace, free restitution was made before the the younger brother could do anything. So the father comes out. He lavishes him with hugs, with kisses. He puts the coat around him so that his unrighteousness, his filthy rags are cleansed, are covered. The, The father does not say to the son, first, before you come back and are one of my own, you have to clean yourself up. You have to do these things and then I'll take you back. He says, I'm the one that will do those things for you. You come to me dirty, I will cleanse you. So he saw the amazing grace of the Father. There's a rejoicing. He gives him the best robe. He gives him a ring on his hand, a signet ring to say, you're in the family again. You have been brought back. You are my son. He gives him sandals. You are a son. You're not a slave. There's a party. But we still need to finish the parable. Truly, If we were to stop at that point, we wouldn't have gotten to the main point of the parable. That's why calling this the parable of the prodigal son is a little bit of a misnomer because, yes, it's about the prodigal, but it's more so about the older brother. This parable is told to get to this third character. We've only seen the younger brother and the father, but this parable is told to get to the older brother. So if we don't get there, we've missed the entire reason why Jesus is telling this parable. So let's read it one last time in its entirety to see this third character pop up and 
in light of the context we've seen, see his answers and responses to the amazing grace of the Father. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of those citizens of the country. And he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. No one was giving anything to him. But... When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up. I will go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But... While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him, put the ring on his hand, put sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let's eat and celebrate Because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. His father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. God, please give us grace this morning to see clearly what you would have us see in your word. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold Jesus and the wonder of the cross, to behold ourselves and the wonder of our sinful depravity that we would be undone and that we all would come to the feast that we've all been invited to. A feast of grace. God, I pray that you would break down walls in our hearts this morning that have been built up by a rigid obedience 
to a law that we think will get us to heaven. And may we fall flat on our face and say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Teach us this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. At this point in this story, uh, the first two uh, sections that we looked at, we weep. Uh, We are overwhelmed with tears, with a touching, amazing, um, beautiful account of a, a son being unified back, reunified with his father. But the original audience would not have wept. They would have looked upon the father at that point in the story with scorn and shame because of his wasteful, excessive love and grace towards the son. We hear ourselves as that younger brother, and so we are overwhelmed by the grace that God has lavished upon us. But the original listeners, the original audience, has heard only shame. The younger brother's demand, the father acquiescing to that demand, the younger brother going to a Gentile country, feeding the pigs, being hired to one of the citizens, coming home, and then the father not reprimanding his son, but lavishing grace upon his son. That's even more shame. That's exponential shame. The whole thing has been shameful, but to put an exclamation point on the shame, there's a party being thrown for this son. This son has done nothing to earn this party, and yet there's a celebration for this son that the entire audience would have heard as a shameful thing. And that's exactly where the older brother comes into this story. He's the third character, and the entire parable Uh, is embodied, the whole lesson of the parable is embodied in what he says and what he does and how he thinks. So what I want to do for our time this morning is very simply go through this passage. Um, We're just going to look at one main point. I think it's the title of the sermon, just the wicked brother, the brother's wicked heart on display. That's all we're looking at. We're just going to see his wickedness and then we're going to see the implications for our own soul. Um, I believe that our familiarity with this text has brought a sense of contempt for it. We just see ourselves as the younger brother. We don't understand this older brother. And I pray by the time we're done, you'll see yourself as an older brother in many situations in your life as well. I know that this text has been my undoing as I have seen myself as the older brother time and time again and seen that I am way more wicked than I ever thought I was. And I pray that by God's grace, he would reveal our wickedness to us and then we'd run to the cross together in response. The brothers, the older brother's wicked heart on display. Verse 25. Now, the older son was in the field. We first met this older son in verse 11. A man has two sons, so we know there's two. But one of the first things that we notice about this older brother is that he's nowhere in the first two sections of this parable. He should have been there alongside his brother saying, hey, bro, you shouldn't be doing this. He should have been there with his father when the son comes home to say, I welcome you back. But we never see the older son until verse 25. And the very first time that we meet the older brother, he's in the field. This is very, very important. He's working. That should be a very strange thing to hear when we've heard the younger brother saying that the father has hired servants to do the work. Why is this older brother working? Typically, in that day and age, you would not have your family members doing the work. You'd have them overseeing, for sure, but they wouldn't be doing the work. This older son is doing work in the field that probably he doesn't even have to be doing, necessarily. We'll come back to that. But he hears music 
and dancing when he comes and approaches the house. This is probably late at night because um, when the sun goes down is when the party would commence. So he's been working out all day in the field, and he's finally returning home late at night. The party has started. The sun has gone down, and he hears music. He probably smells a smell of roasted meat, that amazing smell when you drive by Chipotle, and you just, you just, oh, yes, please, and it just makes you pull into the, this, he's smelling that. He's blown away by a party, but his reaction is not the reaction we think would come. As you're driving by Chipotle and you see there's a party going on in that building and you smell that party and you go, I want me some of that. We expect his response to be, party, awesome. What is his response? Verse 26. He summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things should be or could be. He doesn't run into the party. He isn't excited that a party's going on. He's suspicious. Legalistic people are almost always suspicious, particularly when they encounter joyful people. Have you noticed this? Legalistic people, when they encounter joyful people, are going, why are you so happy? There's a, bad, there's a reason that shouldn't be there that you're happy. Legalistic people are constantly looking and judging, going, that's not right, that couldn't be right, there's something wrong about this. And that's exactly what we see about this older brother. He summons one of the servants to begin inquiring because he's looking, going, I suspect something's wrong. He's suspicious of it. And his actions not to go in and ask the father show us that he already assumed that the father was doing something that he didn't like. I believe he already knew what the party was for. He goes and he speaks to one of the servants. The word for servant is a word for uh, a younger boy of a servant. So the family, um, if you're a, a hired family or a slave family, um, the, the older people would be working in the field and the, the kids would help out a bit. But the older people are already in the party. The older servants are already in the, the party. Mom and dad are already hanging out in the party. And so their son's kind of finishing up some work. And so he goes and he speaks to one of these little kids. And the little kid knows exactly what's going on. He inquires the word inquiring is literally the word for demands. And it's in a verb tense that means keep on demanding. He, he is just drilling this guy with questions. Question after question. What's going on? Why is it happening? When did it happen? Speak to me. Come on. And he can't even get a word in edgewise. I think that he knew exactly what was happening. He's already assuming. He's already suspicious. And he's already angry. He knew that his father loved his brother. He knew that because he saw his father every day waiting at the porch looking for his brother. He knew that his father loved his brother because his father did not throw a funeral for his brother when his brother left. So he knew there's only one reason why there would be a party happening here. He knew it. The boy answers and says exactly what the older brother is expecting to hear. Verse 27 Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Received, that's our word, back in verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners, expectantly, eagerly, wanting, desiring. That's exactly what the father was doing, because that's exactly what Jesus was doing. And Jesus embodies the father. The father embodies Jesus. 
He received him. He eagerly awaited for him. He longed for him to return. And he didn't just receive him. My Bible says received him back safe and sound. That phrase, safe and sound, is where we get our word hygiene from. It meant he received him cleanly. He cleansed him. He cleaned him up. He received him whole. And he's no longer alienated. He doesn't need to do anything. It's a receiving that brings him back into the fold, back into the family, with complete privileges. He's already changed for the better. He's clean. And he hasn't done anything to deserve it. But he's been reinstated as a son. That's what that phrase, safe and sound, means. Completely cleansed, reinstated as, as a son, with no work or deserving on his part. The father just said it. So the older brother really isn't angry at the son or his brother. The older brother's angry at the father now. He's angry at the father. Verse 28, he became angry. He wasn't willing to go in. His father came out and began pleading with him. We all know what his response should have been. His response should have been, yes, my brother's home. And he goes in and he celebrates with his dad over the brother returning. But he doesn't. He's not even willing to go in. And here we see the first of many parallels. And this one's obvious. We've already seen others that aren't as obvious. But if you were to ask, are the younger brother and the older brother at all alike? If you were to ask a Pharisee, they'd say, no way, they're completely different. And if you were to ask most people in this world, are there similarities? It may be, but not really. They're very, very different. This is one glimpse into the reality that these two brothers are so much alike, way more than they are different. There are some differences, but the younger brother and the older brother are almost identical. They're almost identical. And here's one very helpful way, as Jesus is a master storyteller, here's one helpful way. The older brother is not even willing to go in, so his father has to come out and seek him and plead with him. Just like his father had to come out and seek the younger brother. The younger brother is far off and needs the father to seek him. The older brother is far off and needs the father to seek him. And as the father comes out, the father has every right to command his son, get in the house, celebrate, what are you doing? But we know that Jesus doesn't do that. He comes out and pleads lovingly. We're going to see that in a couple verses. And as he pleads, verse 29, the older brother answers and says, look. Now, you should never say that to your parents. No, just throw that word as a first word. If you want to say, hey, look at the eagle flying in the air. That's fine. Just put hey before look. Don't ever say, look, don't just as a son or a daughter, you never say that word to your parents. He says, look, you listen to me. For so many years, I have been serving you. I've been serving. Literally, that word serving is doulos. It's slaving. I have been your slave. And I have never neglected a command of yours. So number one, I haven't been your son this whole time. I'm I'm your slave. I'm your slave. But also, number two, I have never neglected a command of yours. Yeah, right, you've never neglected command. If you are a son or a daughter, you know that you are very disobedient all the time. But he, in his own assessment of himself, he says, I have never neglected a command. It sounds to me like the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler? Jesus answers his question. He asks, what do I need to do to get to heaven? And he, Jesus answers, keep the whole law. If you want to get to heaven on your own, you need to be perfect in the law. And what's his answer? All of these things I have kept from my youth. I've done it all. 
And Jesus says, well, let's target your affections. Go sell everything you have. Give to the poor. And he won't do that because he loves something more than he loves Jesus. But there's an assessment that older brothers make of themselves. They look at themselves and they say, I'm doing really well. I've never neglected a command. How could somebody that's so thoroughly miserable as this older brother is, and even in the moment that he's saying it, he's sinning because of his terrible attitude. How could he insist that he's perfect, that he's never neglected a command, has no need for repentance? Such is the self-deception of sin. Sin is so deceiving. Legalistic people are really good at lying to themselves. They tell themselves they're really good and that they don't neglect God's commands because their sinful hearts have an amazing capacity for self-deception. All of our sinful hearts do. So he says, I've never neglected a command of yours. One would ask, at least I would ask in this moment, hang on, son. If you think that you are my slave, you don't see our relationship as a father-son, you just think I'm a mean master and you're my slave, and you think you're living perfectly in, in my eyes and keeping all the commandments, can I just ask the question, why have you stayed here? Why didn't you leave? If that's the way you feel about our relationship, you, you could have left. Why did you stay? Why did this older brother stay? He's going to tell us, I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Why did he stay? Ultimately, he stayed because he wanted the father's inheritance. I can't wait until dad dies so that I can get his stuff. And I'd love to get some of his stuff right now, like a young goat to celebrate with my friends. Notice what he says. Here's similarity number two that's so clearly seen. What did the younger brother want? Dad, I wish you were dead. I just want the part of the inheritance that falls to me. You're no good to me. You're no use to me. I just want you dead. What does the older brother want? Dad, I just want the inheritance. I wish you were dead. I guess I'll just stick around and wait. But if you were to give me something right now, I wouldn't enjoy it with you. I would enjoy it with my friends. I don't want to be with you, Dad. I consider myself a slave. I consider myself perfect. And if you ever gave me a gift, I would get out of here as fast as I could and celebrate that gift with friends, not with you. I don't like you. Then verse 30, he says, but when this son of yours came, son of yours, it's like when your kids are really bad and you say to your spouse, hey, your son did something. Like, I'm not in this. Uh, Son of yours. Look, he's dead to me is what the brother's saying. I, I had a funeral in my mind for him. You should have. You're wrong. But he's dead to me. So he's your son. That's fine. He's not my brother anymore. He disowned him. When your son came, who had devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Notice what this older brother is saying. In short, he's saying, Dad, I've never done anything wrong, and you're the one who's doing what's wrong. You shouldn't have done what you did. You acted incorrectly. You acted sinfully. Dad, you've been bringing shame upon our house. I'm the one who's been perfect, and you're bringing shame. Okay, how's the father going to answer this? The father's going to answer with grace, just the same way he gave grace to the younger brother. He could have easily said, son, that's no way to talk. And uh, you're not going to be allowed to this party, and if you keep this up, I'm going to throw a funeral for you. But instead, verse 31, he says to him, son, and that's a crucial word, um, there's a couple different words for son in the Greek. 
You could kind of think of it like father and Abba, daddy. Like father is the title, yes, father, and daddy is an affectionate term. This word for son is the affectionate word, my child. He's not looking down upon his older brother, even though he should. This older brother, this, this eldest son, should totally be looked down upon him. Should be smacked upside the head and should be told, get out of here until you've changed your attitude. But instead, he pleads with him, my child, the one that I love. You've always been here with me. You didn't run away. You're right. You stayed here with me. And the inheritance that I have to give you is yours. It is yours. All of it's yours. You don't need to do anything to earn it or deserve it. You can't. It's yours because you're my son, because I've called you my child. But we had to celebrate. We had to rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. We had to. This father, in his words and his tone, is such a rebuke to my soul. This, this entire parable really classifies two types of people. Younger brothers, older brothers. Younger brothers just do their own thing. Rebellious, out and out people. I find it so much easier as a pastor to interact with prodigals. I find it so much easier. They know that they've done wrong. As you speak of the grace of God in their lives, they're overjoyed. They're so ecstatic. And then they just start sharing with other people. Can you believe that God would love us enough to send Jesus and kill him in our places? It's unbelievable. I find it a lot more challenging to speak with older brothers. I think they know everything. I think everybody does things worse than they do very judgmental, very hypercritical. And yet the father answers both the exact same way, with grace. My child, I love you and I have everything for you. He doesn't take it, hey, the way that you responded, I'm taking it back. What a loving, gracious Savior. This is a plea that the Savior is making that if the older brother would come and be a part of the party, seeing his sinfulness, seeing his need for grace, then the party's equally for the older brother. Come now, be a part of the party. All that's mine is yours. Be a part of the party. This party's for you just as much as it's for your younger brother. But to hear that as a Pharisee would make you instantly say, wait, you're telling me that I'm just like this younger brother? I didn't do those things. I haven't done that sinful thing. And that's exactly where Jesus wants us to be. And then he stops. He doesn't finish this story. Well, what's the older brother going to say? What's happening to the younger brother inside the party? What's the dad going to do? The ending is so abrupt, and it's abrupt for a reason, because Jesus has just given to the Pharisees a plea. Will you come and enjoy the grace that I've given to the younger brother? Or are you still going to stand afar and say grace is unreasonable? Grace is unfair. Look at everything we've done to earn a right standing before God. They didn't do any of it. Grace is unfair. And because of that, though there's no ending to this story, we know how the story ultimately ends. The Pharisees are going to be the ones that get Jesus killed. They're going to execute the Son of God. So if we were to write our own ending for this story, we would say that the older brother out in the field, as the father's pleading with him, just goes up and strangles his father and kills him in the field, leaves him for dead. That's the way that the story ultimately ends, because the Pharisees are the ones that killed Jesus. Why? 
One pastor says it this way. I love this quote. Grace, it turns out, is fundamentally unfair and therefore offensive. It makes no allowance for what we feel, or what we feel anyone else, is owed, which hints at why Christ encountered such profound opposition to his ministry, ending ultimately in his execution. Human nature is such that we may appreciate the gift in theory, but not so much in practice. A pure gift upsets the balances of power, may even invert them. Unconditional love is so threatening to sinful men and women and the precious hierarchies that they create that the one time it was made fully manifest in history in Christ, we killed it. We can't deal with grace. We don't know what to do with grace. Wait, you're telling me that you love your younger son even though he did all these terrible things to you? Even though he sinned in all these grievous, shameful ways to you? Dad, what did he do to earn your love? And the answer, nothing. I love him. I love him. I love him. That's the way the story ends. But for us this morning, we need to end our time by looking at the implications of this entire parable for us. The implications are so profound. I think we'll spend our entire lives seeing ourselves in this story. The implications for us are very clear. There are two types of people. Remember, that's exactly where Jesus began this account. Chapter 15, verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him, but the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. So we have those two types. We have out-and-out rebellious sinners, and we have people that look totally righteous and clean on the outside. We have two completely different types of people. And the Pharisees and the scribes are looking down. They're grumbling because Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. Younger brothers, prodigals, if you will, are out and out rebellious. Their sin is obvious. But here's the implication of this account for us. Older brothers are just as evil and just as wicked. And I would say, if not more so, it just takes a different form. The older brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness. I'm being good, but I'm doing all these other bad things, and so because of these bad things, in spite of the goodness that I'm trying to do to love my father and to have his love, I lose it. No. The older brother is losing the father's love because of his goodness. The older brother is not going to find love from the father because he's declaring, you must love me because I'm good. I'm not blown away by your love for me. I'm surprised you don't love me more because look at how awesome I am. You're not going to get love from God if you say that. It's not his sins, it's not the older brother's out-and-out rebellious sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's his pride, the pride that he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, it's his righteousness that's keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father. How can that be? If you were to look at tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes and say, which one's more righteous? We'd instantly go, well, they look way more righteous. And this story is telling us that both of them are equally as sinful and wicked, if not more so these scribes and Pharisees? How can that be? Because the two brothers in this account are more alike in their sin than meets the eye. What did the younger son want most? I don't want my dad. I hate my dad. I just want my dad's thing. So I'm going to go to him and I'm going to say, Dad, I wish you were dead and I want your stuff. And I'm going to get as far away as I can from you. What did the older brother want? Dad, I don't like you at all. In fact, I'm not even going to talk to you. 
I'm not going to go to you. And when you come talk to me, I'm going to look down on you with shame. I don't love you at all. I just want your stuff. And if you were ever to give me anything, I would take it and run as far away from you as I can and hang out with my friends. I don't want you. Deep down inside, the younger brother and the older brother want exactly the same thing. They just go about it very differently. The younger brother goes about his desires and his wants by saying, I just wish you were dead and and showing it and showing his rebellion. No hiding it. But the older brother hides his rebellion. He hides a sinful heart against his father. I don't like you, dad. I hate you, but I'll hang out with you. In fact, I'll do everything you tell me to do in hopes that one day when you die, you must give me the inheritance. You owe it to me. I have deserved it. I have earned it. They want the exact same thing. They're just going about it completely differently. The older brother's way of getting what he wanted, which is exactly what the younger brother wanted, was to stay as close as he could to the father instead of leaving and going to the far country. Each one wanted to get into a position in which they could tell the father what to do. Each one rebelled. One did so by being very bad, and one rebelled by being very good. Both sons are lost. And I would ask, who's more lost? The one who knows, uh uh-oh, I sinned and I'm far away, or the one who says, I've never sinned in my life? I think older brothers are in a more precarious situation. There is more danger in the older brother's legalism than there is in the younger brother's hedonism. In fact, look at the way that they interact with their father when they return. The first word that you see from the younger brother when he returns to his father, when he interacts with his dad again, is father. I want to be your son. Not worthy, but I want to be your son. The first word that we hear the older brother saying to the father is, look, you listen to me. I've done everything right and you're doing things that are wrong. Both are equally lost. Both are alienated. And this is the key implication for us. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them as diligently as you possibly can. You can be equally as alienated. Why? Because careful obedience to God's law can serve as a strategy to rebel against him because if you completely obey everything God has told you to obey, then you don't need a savior. This is exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all the religious leaders did when they set up laws. They set up an amazing system of laws. Let me just remind you of the system of laws they set up. They have a system of 613 laws. 613 laws. How did they get that? 613. They chose that number very specifically. Why? Because that's how many separate individual letters are found in the text of the Ten Commandments. So they go to each letter in the text of the Ten Commandments, and they go, there's 613, 613 laws. Excuse me, there's 10 laws, 10 commandments. No, no, we're making 613, thank you very much. Then they split that up into do's and don'ts. The do's, there were 248 do's in that list of 613. 248 for one for every part of the human body as they understood it. I think that they're falling quite a bit short of what's actually going on in the human body. But as they understood it, there's 248 parts to the human body. So there's one do for every part. Like, let your spleen praise the Lord. I don't know what they had, but one do for every part. And then there were 365 don'ts, one for every day of the year. Their calendar year would switch and shift a little bit, but 365 for every day of the year. So they categorized 613 laws 
one for every letter contained in the text of the Ten Commandments, then they split it out do's and don'ts. They did it very, very clearly. Why? They loved laws. Who loves laws? They did. Why did they love laws? Because if you follow them perfectly, you can say you're blameless. And if you can say you're blameless, then you have no need for a savior. You know the hypothetical question that we ask people when we're sharing the gospel? If you were to die tonight and stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? I don't really see that question being hap- you know, happening in the Bible. There's just, it's a point on a man wants to die and then judgment. So you don't get that interaction. But if you were, what would your answer be? The Pharisees' answer would be, if God said, why should I let you into heaven? The answer would be, look at my record. First of all, they would have said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a, I'm a Jew. Therefore, I'm a part of the kingdom just because of my ethnicity. Second, they would have said, look at my record. Look at everything. I keep the law. I'm blameless. They instantly go to what they do. Older brothers obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get to God. In fact, in that hypothetical situation, if God were to let him into heaven, which he wouldn't, they would say, see ya, and go on somewhere else. They don't want God. They don't obey to get God. They obey to get God's stuff. I I just want God's things. If you can set up in your own mind a, a, a set of rules and you keep them perfectly, then you can stand before God with no need for a Savior whatsoever. You're blameless on your own. And that, I believe, is even more of a precarious, dangerous situation than somebody who sees their sin and comes to their senses. Somebody who's legalistically hypocritical and says, I've got it all together and these people don't. They don't see their own sinfulness. So, we need to examine ourselves. Which brother are you more like? I know that all of us are both younger and older brothers. I know that. But which are you more like? Which are you more like? In my experience, and even with my own soul, if I can just say from the, from the outset, if you've been born and raised in church, you're probably going to err on the side of older brother. You're probably going to do that. We just got to be careful. Let me give you five questions, five tests to examine yourself. Number one, do you immediately get angry when things go wrong for you? Do you immediately get angry when things go wrong for you? It could be because you're an older brother. It could be for a lot of reasons, but it could be because you're an older brother. Why? Older brothers feel that if they live good, moral lives, that God owes it to them to have a smooth life. If they try their hardest to live up to his standards, things are going to go well. So when things don't go well, they go one of two places. They either go, God, you're not holding up your end of the bargain, and they get mad at God, or they get mad at themselves. Well, I just need to try harder. Obviously, things are going poorly because of me. It's my problem. It's either I hate thee or I hate me. God's not holding up his end of this bargain that was never made, by the way. Or you're failing on your end, so you're not getting his blessings. Do you immediately get angry when things go wrong for you? Number two, uh, you could write down comparing. Do you find yourselves comparing yourself to others? And by a huge majority, you come out superior. Do you find yourself comparing yourself to others? And by a huge majority, you come out superior. Competitive comparison is the main way that older brothers achieve their sense of significance. That's the main way they do it. They look around to others. You want to be significant in this life? Instead of looking to Jesus and hearing him say, 
you are a wretched sinner that should depart from me because I don't know wretched sinners. And that he calls you by name and he calls you, beckons you into his presence and he lavishes love and grace and mercy on you. Instead of finding your significance in that, you find your significance in yourself. I'm not as bad as they are. If you're ever having a bad day, the best way to make it a a better day is to look around and go, man, my life's so much better than they are. Then you start attacking their character. You compare yourselves to others and Uh, in in a moral superiority, you always come out way, way, way on top. Number three, do you find it incredibly hard to forgive? Do you find it incredibly hard to forgive? If you can't control your temper and you see somebody else who struggles with it, you are usually more prone to forgive them, right? If you know you're struggling with something and then somebody struggles with it too, you're usually more prone to say, of course, I understand. I love you. I have grace for you because I do the same thing. But if you think that you are perfect, then when somebody sins against you, they're sinning against perfection. They're sinning against holiness. And now, not only will you get mad, but you have the right to be mad because they've just defended holiness. How dare they? In fact, if you're full of your own righteousness, then lavishing a celebration on the recovery of sinful prodigals seems totally foolish, which is exactly what this older brother's struggling with. Why would I ever throw a party for a wretched sinner who's come home? Why would I do that? He's done nothing to earn that. Number four, do you have joyless, fear-based compliance and a sense of strict duty? You could just write down joyless drudgery. Joyless drudgery. Do you not do the bad things? Do you not do the wrong things primarily in the majority of the time so that you don't get in trouble? I'm just not going to do that because I don't want to get in trouble. Remember, the Bible says the pure in heart will see God. They want to be with him. Ultimately, older brothers live their lives only out of fear, not out of joy and love. You need fear as a believer, for sure. But even as we saw this morning in Family Bible Hour, it pushes you to love and adoration. Older brothers don't love Jesus. Their obedience is just slavish, begrudging compliance to the letter of the law. Do you have within you the spirit of a hired servant in God's presence? Or do you have the spirit of a son or a daughter? Loving and working for your daddy because you love him. Don't get me wrong. I I believe that older brothers do think that they do wrong. I think that they do repent, if you will, because they really don't like it when they do wrong things. That wrecks their standards. So yes, of course, I did something wrong. I'm not doing that again. But they don't repent over why they are doing the good that they're doing. They only repent over, oh, I did something wrong. I'm not going to do it again. Instead of repenting over the motivation for why they're even doing the right from the beginning. They don't obey God to get God to be in an intimate relationship with him. They obey God to just get his things, to be blessed by him. It's a form of the prosperity gospel. Number five, finally. Do you have a dry prayer life? No wonder, no awe, no intimacy, no delight, just duty. You could be an older brother. Think of three kinds of people. There's a business associate, there's a friend that you enjoy, and there's somebody that you are in love with, and that is in love with you. Your conversations with the businessman is going to be goal-oriented. Let's do this, let's do this. Awesome, great, we got it, let's go. You're not really interested in chit-chat with them, you're not really interested in hanging out. 
Just get the job done. With your friend, you're open with them. You're honest. You enjoy opening up about problems you're having. But with the lover, you cannot help but speak about them. And you cannot help but speak about how amazing they are and tell them that. You can't help yourself but tell the person you love, thank you for doing this. I love you for this. This is amazing, unbelievable. You can't help it. So where is your prayer life? Older brothers, by the way, do have a prayer life. But their prayer life isn't a private prayer life. It's a public one. And it usually only starts happening when things get really bad. When things get bad, it's proving in their mind that they haven't done the right thing. So they have to get themselves in a place where they can quit praying again because everything's going right. Older brothers are just using God. So, how do we wrap up this parable and the implications for our souls? This is the way I would say it. We will never stop being younger brothers or older brothers until we acknowledge our need. We are sinners. Rest by faith, not by works. If you have a relationship with God that's based on your works, you're going to have a terrible relationship. How much is enough? What if you fail? What happens if it goes wrong? You're terrible relationship. Acknowledge your sinful need, rest by faith in Christ, and gaze in wonder at the work of Jesus. John Newton says it well. He said in a song, our pleasure and our duty. Pleasure, this is what I want, what I have to do. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before. Since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. That's what, that's what happens when you're saved. Think of the older brother. I'm doing all of these things that I don't want to do so that I can get something. Remember what the younger brother thought? Dad, you're just a barrier. You're not a blessing. The older brother thought the same thing. Dad, you're just a barrier. Die already. I want your stuff. Pleasure and duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. William Cooper, to see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. So if you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I identify clearly with the younger brother. I would plead with you, today is the day to stop, to come to your senses, to stop out and out rebellion against God and to turn to him for forgiveness of sins, to come to your right mind and to come to him not on the basis of your works. You can't offer good works to him to be saved. Your good works are filthy rags. Come before him and plead the mercy of Jesus Christ and you will find salvation. You're going to live differently because you'll be motivated by grace. And if you're here this morning and you identify with the older brother, the way to undo that is to humble yourself with gratitude. The reason why the older brother wouldn't go into the party is because he thought that party was only for the younger brother. It's only grace, stupid grace, foolish grace lavished upon a guy who doesn't deserve it. If he would have realized that that party was equally for him, the father's beckoning him, come, be a part of the party. It's for you too. You're just as wicked, you're just as sinful, and you're just as in need of my grace. Come and enjoy a lavished party of grace and mercy. We will never stop being younger brothers or older brothers until we acknowledge our need Because of our sin, we rest by faith in Jesus and we gaze in wonder at the work of our Savior.
God, I pray that you would work in our hearts through these implications. We are all younger brothers and older brothers. We have all gone astray, even as we sang, as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost. We just did our own thing in rebellion. But God, there might be some in this room that are just trying to be good people, decent people, maybe even going to church as a part of their checklist to say on that last day, I did things to gain your love. God, that's exactly what the religious leaders say to you in Matthew 7. We prophesied, we cast out demons, we did all of these works in your name. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. God, may we glory in grace. May the unfairness of grace be a marvel to us. May we not look down on those around us who might be struggling with sin, but see ourselves in their struggle. Because we are not perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. And so we plead the perfection of the blood of Christ as our only hope. God, may we be undone by grace. And this morning, may we be grateful with gratitude and thankfulness in our hearts for the love that you've shown to us, older and younger brothers, in need of the grace.